On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's word. Weddings are clearly a really significant part of the Christian life and one of the symbols that brings glory to God as weddings represent Christ and the church coming together. We are the bride. He is the groom. And it's interesting to think for something so significant, we don't actually have that many accounts of weddings, wedding ceremonies in the Bible. We have plenty of people who get married. We have the recording of them marrying one another. We don't actually have that many weddings. If you take um, Adam and Eve as the first wedding, then perhaps we have uh, Jacob as the second, which doesn't go uh, too well, does it? He has a, a bride switched unbeknownst to him. He finishes the wedding night and then there's a different woman there. So quite a poor start to weddings in the Bible. And we don't actually have that many um, after that. We have a few here and there. So when we do have a wedding ceremony, uh, it's very significant. And we really only get a glimpse into it here in this passage, but it is a significant passage because Jesus is here at the wedding. It's also very significant because of the positioning of this account within John's gospel. And I've mentioned some of this before that the gospel writer, John, has been very careful to labor that something new is happening in his gospel account. As he looks at the life and ministry of Jesus, something new is happening. We know that because John 1.1 is an allusion to Genesis 1.1. There is a new creation. So just like Genesis 1 records, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1.1, we have in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then uh, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. So there's a recreation, a new creation happening here. Even more than this, once we get to verse 19 of chapter 1, the historical account, which begins at verse 19, the historical account of John here 
He is very particular to detail specific days. So you'll notice we have this first day from verse 19. And then in verse 29, John says the next day he saw Jesus coming. Then we have verse 35, the next day again. Then we have verse 43, the next day. So we have four days there. Now, lest you think this is clutching at straws, John doesn't do this anywhere else in his gospel account. And I think you'll see a lot of intentionality to this because notice that he finishes our passage today in chapter two. He begins it by being very specific by saying on the third day. And then in verse 12, he just finishes it by saying, oh, and after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples. And they stayed there just a few days. Nothing specific, just a few days. It's literally just not many days. So he has an intentional vagueness there to sort of finish, to say, don't read the rest of my gospel looking for every single day. This is just something that I'm drawing your attention to now. So we have here these four days and then verse one of our passage here on the third day, which is three days after verse 43. And there's a little bit of, Um, debate as to whether that means the sixth or seventh day because of the way Jews calculated things. But either way, we can see here a week of days happening. And then at the end of this week, we have this wedding feast. So there is something very significant to this new creation that we're being pointed to in the Gospel of John that culminates in this wedding feast. So as we approach this story, let's just have this idea of newness in uh, the forefront of our minds as we're looking at this to see this new creation that Jesus brings about. Let's look through the story now, work our way through it. And then what I want to do is finish with three things that this story is pointing us to and then two applications after that. As is often the case, stories throughout the gospel accounts follow a particular pattern. They usually have an introduction just with other stories, an introduction where you introduce the setting and the characters. And then there's this rising tension and a climax in the narrative. The tension begins to rise to a climax. And then there is a resolution to that and a conclusion and then a point. And we see that through this story. So verses one to two, we just have the opening scene. We have the setting and the characters. We know Jesus's mum is there. We know Jesus is there with his disciples. We know it's a wedding. So the setting is a wedding and weddings are, uh, though still a significant thing today, uh, they're maybe not as significant as in a Jewish context. I know long before I came to Christ, I went to a few weddings and those weddings were really more just the same as like a 21st birthday party or something like that. They were just an excuse to drink a whole lot and and have some fun, which is a terrible way to um, celebrate a man and woman coming together. And thankfully, we can redeem that in our culture still. But certainly 2000 years ago in a Jewish culture and indeed even today, weddings were far more significant. They mark a huge shift, a once in a lifetime shift where both woman and man come out from under their families and they join and they cleave together and they begin the new family unit. And that's a huge shift. 
So because of this, in a Jewish context, it wasn't uncommon for these wedding ceremonies to go for a week. There were seven days. Imagine that, James and Gary about to get married. Seven days of, of your guests coming to you, and it would be that long so that anyone could come and present uh, gifts to you in order to really honor you. There would be seven days of feasting and the bride and the groom would really be honored in a significant way. So there was a lavishness to the ceremonies. Uh, as many people as possible would come to really uh, pour their gratitude onto the wedding couple. Now, this scene introduces us to the rising tension in this narrative as we look from verse three to five. Here we have the major problem in the storyline, and that is that the wine runs out. This is a huge problem to have at a wedding in Jewish context. Remember, these weddings are supposed to be abundant times of lavishness. Food and drink should be flowing. So to run out of wine would be quite the insult to your guests, almost to say you're not really all that worthy to make sure that you have food and drink. It would be an insult to the guests. Not only that, remember, this is an honor-shame culture, so it would bring an incredible amount of shame upon the bridegroom whose responsibility it was to provide. It would be social disgrace. We often miss the significance of this because we don't really operate in an honor-shame context here. But readers throughout the first several centuries, and indeed readers now in the majority world, places where there is still a great honor-shame context, would understand that to be shamed in this way for the bridegroom and his family would be an utter disgrace. And there are still cultures now where if you are shamed in that way, uh, you basically have to leave. That's it. Unless someone covers your shame in an extraordinary way, you, you just need to leave your community and start afresh somewhere else. You can't show your face because you've lost face. It's an incredible thing. And astute readers of the Bible and people who like a good biblical theology would remember that shame is one of the first things that we see after the fall. What happens to Adam and Eve? They're ashamed. They cover themselves. They hide from God's presence. They need someone to cover that shame in order to reconcile them. So the situation here in this wedding is that there is a potential for social disgrace and deep shame. And now we are directed toward the only one who could possibly cover that shame and avert the crisis of social disgrace for the bridegroom. And so this plays out where Mary, the mother of Jesus, it seems like she must have a significant part in the wedding. It's likely a, a relative or a very close friend that she obviously feels a sense of responsibility to make sure that uh, there is enough wine. And we don't know whether Mary was expecting a miracle from Jesus or whether uh, she just knew him as a dependable guy who, if there was a problem, he could fix it. Either way, Mary clearly comes to her son and expects him to be able to offer some solution. And Jesus responds with the words, Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
Literally, what to me and to you? Like the ESV has a fair translation of what does this have to do with me? It's like saying, what, how does this concern me? How does your problem concern me in any way? Now, people are right to say that the address of woman isn't necessarily a harsh, like it would sound quite harsh to us. It's certainly not the warmest of expressions that Jesus gives, uh, but it's, there's no disrespect in that. It's, it's just a common phrase, but certainly nothing that you would expect to say to a mother. There's no real warmth in the phrase. But again, certainly no rudeness to that. But there is a lot of debate around whether this uh, phrase here of what to me and to you, what does this have to do with me, is actually Jesus giving a gentle rebuke to his mother. And I think that is right. I think we probably just are a bit scared of that happening uh, but the reality is the way this expression is used, particularly because Jesus finishes by saying, my hour has not yet come. It's Jesus planting a line or planting uh, his foot down, drawing a line in the sand toward his mother saying, what does this concern? How does this concern me? It is a bit of a gentle rebuke. And I think there's reasons for that. I think one of which is because Jesus at this point is very clearly demonstrating that no one dictates when he performs a miracle or when he reveals his glory, because he says, my, my hour has not yet come, which is often talking about his death and resurrection, his final hour, where he would be glorified, the Father would be glorified. No one dictates that. He follows the Father's will alone, which is then the second reason why I think Jesus is uh, drawing a clear line in the sand as if to say to his mother, I'm... Uh, entering into this earthly ministry where my whole purpose now is to do the Father's will. My whole purpose is to live to please the Father. We know that Jesus goes on to say, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? Not by earthly blood, but anyone who does the will of my Father. He is my brother. He is my sister. He is beginning to draw a clear line in the sand to say, I am solely following my Father's will now. And that is in no way disrespectful to his mother. If anything, it would be disrespectful not to be very clear that he is the Messiah. And even Mary must come to him as Messiah. She cannot come to him drawing the mother card. She must come to him as Messiah, which is a helpful reminder for us that there is no partiality in coming to the Lord. You don't bring anything to the table. It is entirely the grace of God. There is no partiality. We all must come as sinners in need of a savior. So after this gentle rebuke, Mary, I think, demonstrates a wonderful trust in Jesus as she still then looks to the servants and says, hey, do whatever he says. It's like she clearly knows that if anyone is going to be able to offer any form of solution to this, it's Jesus. So she says, do whatever he tells you. And now we get to the resolution of this tension, the shame that is felt here, the issue of no wine. We finally get to the resolution where in verses six to eight, we read here that there are six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. They can hold 20 or 30 gallons. This is like up to 600 liters of water. It's a huge amount of water. And these uh, jars are there for the usual rites of purification. 
in Jewish laws, there, there, there were responsibilities upon people to purify themselves, certainly before eating or if they had any form of defilement. And Jesus instructs the servants here to fill these with water. So they fill them up to the brim. It's literally here, they fill them until above. So Jesus asks them uh, to fill them. Notice that the servants don't respond as if to say, well, why? Or, well, how, how high? It's amazing. They just immediately fill it up to the brim straight away without having to respond in any way. And then in verse 9, we finally see the result where the master of the feast, this is the guy who is in charge of everything, who wants to make sure that everything runs smoothly and who is going to give the final judgment, so to speak, on whether it was a success or not. In verse 9, we read that uh, a miracle has happened. We see because the master of the feast tastes the wine. And then in verse 10, he is astounded and he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, speaking of the bridegroom, you have saved the best until now. This is the good wine. The wine that would usually be presented first. So the immediate solution, if we're just solely looking at this story in its historical context, the immediate solution, which is a huge solution, is that the shame of the bridegroom has been covered. The crisis has been averted. Not only that, but the bridegroom was at risk of a huge social disgrace. And he's gone from someone who was at risk of a huge social disgrace to all of a sudden being praised. To, as if the master of the feast is saying like, wow, what an incredible guy. He just blindsided me with that. This has been the best wedding ever. It's a wonderful shift from shame to then being praised. Now, along with the resolution and the conclusion of this story, which is a wonderful picture of uh, shame being covered, we read in verse 11 that this whole event was the first of the signs that Jesus did amongst his disciples, uh, which manifested his glory. Now, this little line here assures us that this lovely story is not simply about Jesus uh, loving a good party and covering the shame of the bridegroom and saving the day. There is actually an incredible amount of significance to this. The word sign here in verse 11, this is the first of his signs, is a common word that John uses, which, uh, I mean, we get this anyway, sign is to point to something, but certainly the core of the meaning is to, to symbolize, to indicate, to signify that something is happening beyond simply what we can see here. It's pointing to something, just like a beautiful pink sky in the morning is usually pointing to the fact that we're getting a lot of rain later on that day, rather than just that there's a beautiful pink sky. There is a symbol uh, that lies beyond that. So the point of this story isn't just that Jesus loves wine 
or loves a good party and so wants to make sure everyone has a good time, or even, as I said, just simply that he covers the shame, though it's a wonderful picture of the gospel of our shame being covered and us being elevated through nothing that we do, uh, but receiving the status of the Son of God. There's actually something beyond that. John, uh, more than this, is very intentional to select particular signs to record in this gospel. We remember the ending in John chapter 20, verse 31. John says, Now Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, but these are written for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you may have life in his name. So there are many he goes on to say, if, if we wrote down everything that happened in the life of Jesus, well, the whole world couldn't contain the books. These particular signs, and most people agree that there are seven particular signs in the Gospel of John that are recorded. These are recorded specifically so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we would have life in his name. So because of this, it is entirely appropriate for us to consider why this sign is recorded as the first sign that Jesus performed and why it's recorded here. At the end of John's opening, at the end of him being very specific about these days, culminating in a six or a seven day period, and then this wedding where water is turned into wine. So why is this? What exactly is this story indicating to us. The first thing of three that I believe this story is indicating to us is that new wine brings the new age. New wine brings the new age. We've already seen how John is using language to show that there's a new creation happening here. There's something really significant. And then when we think about the way wine is used throughout Scripture, when we think about some of the passages in the Old Testament, which we have to be careful here because it's true that there are many passages that refer to wine in more judgment terms, like the cup of the wine of God's wrath. But then there are specific passages that clearly point to this mark of God's restoration and wine is very symbolic in that. It's used in Amos 9. Verse 14, which Amos 9 is one of the passages that is referred to in Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council that you can do your own study on maybe later on. But in Amos 9, 14, it talks about the restoration of Israel and it says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Or if we read in Joel chapter 2, again, this is, this is the, the context of the passage that Peter uses on the day of Pentecost, where I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And in Joel 2.24, God says of this idea of restoration, the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. This will be the mark of restoration. And then just a few verses later, it says afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. And this is what is initiated in, at Pentecost, when the spirit is poured out. Another passage, Isaiah 25, 6. 
God is again speaking of this future restoration. And we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Doesn't that sound like a beautiful feast? It's this idea of an abundance of food, of flowing wine, of aged wine, well refined. I'm not much of a wine drinker, but it even sounds quite good to me. This idea of lavishness in feasting and wine. It's a picture of restoration because right after this in Isaiah 25 and verse 9, we read, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The wine is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is bringing about the initial fulfillment, not the completeness of it, but the initial fulfillment of these restorative promises is indicating that Jesus has ushered in a new age. He's ushered in this new age that that God was promising for his people the promised age where salvation would come, where we would be able to to rejoice in it because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And of course, we still wait for a specific day where we will experience the fullness of this. We still wait for the specific day where God will bring about the fulfillment of all of this. But in the first coming of Christ, Jesus has ushered in the initial fulfillment of this restoration. We have the foretaste of this banquet because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we can now be glad and rejoice in his salvation because we have seen the salvation of God in Jesus. He has come. This sign points to the fact that this day, this this new age where God's spirit would dwell amongst his people, where the church would be the vessel of God's Uh, mission to proclaim a wonderful Christ. This age has been ushered in by Jesus. And necessarily tied to this is then the new age. Uh, Sorry, necessarily tied to the new age is, of course, the new creation. So this is the second thing that this is pointing us to, which is the new creation, which is fundamental to this new age. So in this sign here in the wedding, we have this picture of the transformation that comes as a result of the recreating work of Christ. There is a picture of transformation. The water is transformed to wine. All of it transformed. It's not like there was just a little bit of, you know, wine concentrate that was put in and slowly, like Jesus just completely transformed it. You could say he converted the water into wine, a complete transformation. And it's interesting that this happened in these stone jars, these six stone jars that are there for purification. It's as if the old methods of purification that they would have to do again and again to make themselves clean. Jesus takes that and he shows that they are done away with because he is converting. He is transforming, bringing about the new creation and he will be the one who purifies. There will be an abundance of purification, of cleansing for those who come to Jesus. And all of this, I believe, helps us to see these aspects of this new creation 
which scripture talks about where restoration comes. Jesus is bringing about a new creation. And this is so important and such a wonderful reality. The first creation where man was made in the image of God is corrupted by sin. When sin entered the world, the image is corrupted. It is marred. And so man is fallen. I was just reading in Genesis 6 the other day of God recognizing that in man, the human heart is only evil all the time. And God very clearly saw that. He created man in his image, which is to say he created us that we would reflect him and worship him and bring glory to him. But sin corrupts that. So the first creation is marred. It's stained. It is only by the second and better Adam who is Jesus, who comes to recreate, to restore the image, to restore God's image in us so that in his purifying and cleansing work, we would then rightly reflect the glory of God as his image is restored. And we therefore live our lives as living sacrifices, as is our true and proper worship. We go about with restored images that glorify the Lord. And this is the new creation. And this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. He says in that passage, the very famous passage in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's literally just if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It could be said in another way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has begun. This, this new age, this new creation has begun. We wait for the fulfillment of it, but we are set on this unstoppable trajectory toward the day where that will be fully complete, where the presence of sin will be done away with, where the new heavens and new earth will be brought about. But because of the person and work of Christ, because of that, it is assured he is a new creation. It is assured, just like Paul says in Romans 8. Uh, he who is called is also justified. He was justified, is also glorified. It's assured. We know we are set on this unstoppable trajectory toward glory. So if anyone is in Christ, he is new, born again to a living hope, cleansed and purified. This is part of what we are being pointed to here by the water being transformed completely into wine. This new creation, we are made new. This new age of restoration has begun. Jesus has ushered it in. And we, when we are in Christ, we are made new. The third and final thing that this is pointing us to is that Jesus is the bridegroom who abundantly provides. It's interesting in this passage that we don't know who the bridegroom is. He's an unknown bridegroom, kind of like the unknown soldier. We just have the unknown bridegroom who could have had a life of shame, but it was covered. We don't actually know who he is. And I wonder if part of the point of this unknown identity is because really we should be seeing that Jesus is the bridegroom who has an abundance of provision, who never risks a frugal or shallow amount that will run out. He has the cup that will never run dry. Jesus is the bridegroom who has the abundance of wine, which is the symbol of this restoration. All other false grooms and false messiahs 
who offer cheap substitutes will fall short. Christ and Christ alone is the bridegroom who abundantly provides. He is the one who brings us to the table where we feast on the abundance of his house and where we drink from the river of his delights. He is the bridegroom who has an abundance of provision. So to summarize, this is pointing us to the fact that in Jesus, something new is being inaugurated. Something huge, cosmic on scale, a new creation is being inaugurated where we are purified and made new and necessarily tied to this is the reality that when we have been made new we become the bride of christ who long for our bridegroom who long for our groom to come and take us to the marriage supper of the lamb that is our hope and he has the abundance of provision And we know all of this was pointing us, uh, all of this rather was revealing the glory of Jesus. We read here in verse 11, this is where Jesus manifested his glory. It doesn't simply manifest his glory only because he performs miracles, though that certainly reveals his glory. But part of the point of this, part of what this is revealing, is actually that it reveals more of God's glorious purpose in redemption. It reveals his glorious purpose in the fact that he is going to restore what was lost, and Jesus is bringing about the initial fulfillment of this. It reveals the glory of God because it demonstrates that God desires sinners to be saved and to be purified and to be cleansed, which will only come through the work of Jesus, who can transform lost, dead water into abundant flowing wine. Now, there are two final applications that I want to finish with, as we've seen what this is pointing to. The first application that we should take from this is that we are ambassadors of Christ who must proclaim the message of reconciliation. Now, I'm getting that from 2 Corinthians 5, the same passage that we went over where Paul refers to the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And after Paul talks about this, he goes on to talk about the ministry of reconciliation. He says, in Christ, God reconciled us to himself. And now we are entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors, which is a representative. How do we represent God? Well, the image that he gave to humanity has been restored in Christ. We therefore become representatives, little Christ, who are following our Savior and pointing people to Jesus. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ministers of reconciliation. Paul says, we've been reconciled to God. We therefore go about imploring people to be reconciled to God. Reminding people that the only answer in this world for your grief and your sorrow and your sickness, for your apathy, for your lack of contentment, it's all a result of sin. The only answer is to be cleansed of your sin, to repent and turn to Jesus Christ. That's it. And we have experienced that reconciliation. We therefore now are ambassadors 
who implore people to be reconciled. We are servants of this message. And this is the non-negotiable reality. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have committed to the no-takes-back pathway of being a minister of reconciliation, of sharing that message. And it's, it's interesting, if we think about us as servants, an ambassador is a representative or a servant, and if we think about servants here, and just a very brief application from this passage that I mentioned uh, briefly before of where Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water. And you can imagine, I mean, it's, it's not like they have a hose that they're just filling up 600 liters worth. Like they're going to a well and they're drawing it up. That's an arduous process. So you can imagine these servants being like, why? What, like, what, what is this going to achieve? Do you have any idea how long this is going to take? But we don't see that anywhere. The servants just respond immediately in obedience. And they fill it up to the brim. They don't just like my kind of like tendency would be to fill it up like just enough so it looks full, but like, you know, so that I don't have to do the last two or three trips to the well. They fill it up to the brim. And we, as ambassadors, we as servants, we do what pleases our Savior. We walk in obedience to Him. We do not take shortcuts. We live with integrity. We are ambassadors of Christ, which means we are faithful servants who do all that our Lord requires of us. The second and final application. We prepare ourselves for our wedding. We prepare ourselves for our wedding. So the sign of the new creation and the transformation, this first sign that Jesus performs, that John records, it is at a wedding. And we know that the fulfillment of this new age that Jesus has inaugurated will be consummated at a wedding, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That will be the fulfillment. That's the trajectory we have been set upon. We read in Revelation 19:7 a look into the future of this, where the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The bride has prepared herself. Are you prepared for that day? That is a frightening statement, question. Are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared to stand before the holy God and enter in to the wedding? Like the parable of uh, the wedding invitations gone out and people don't respond and then that man comes to the wedding and then uh, the king comes and says, where are your wedding garments? Where are they? And then we read that he's cast out into hell. Are you prepared for that wedding day? Are you enduring with oil like we read of the five wise virgins who are waiting for their groom who have enough oil, which is a mark of endurance? Are you prepared in that way? living in a way that is expecting the Lord to come, making yourself ready for Christ, making yourself ready, living every day as though he could be returning, saturating yourself with things in this life that promote this, that give an eagerness, that a longing for your bridegroom 
to come? Are you keeping your spiritual wedding garments clean, so to speak? Or are they being corrupted? Are you like the five foolish virgins who didn't have enough oil? And the groom came and they didn't have the lamps. And by the time they were trying to get in, the groom very clearly said, I do not know you. We must be ready. The new age has begun and it will be consummated by our groom returning. And this is a wonderful thing that we should think about a lot. It's like C.S. Lewis saying those who think the most about heaven are the best on earth. If we think about this a lot, if we think about our groom returning, we make ourselves ready. We live with integrity. We live coram Dei before the face of God. We live saturating ourselves with these things as we wait for our groom to come. And what a joyful day. I hope you are thrilled at the prospect of that. So this is what this is pointing us to. Something new is happening. Jesus doesn't just love parties. There is something new happening from this wedding. A new age, a new creation that sets us on this trajectory, longing for Jesus as the true bridegroom, the one who has the abundance of provision. And so we are servants who call people to turn to this one. And we ourselves make ourselves ready for our wedding.